0: Well, thank you very much for having me here. I appreciate being to come and speak to you about uh, transitional justice issues, and in this case, international criminal law and gender issues. Now, I'm a scholar of gender issues in international criminal justice, so I think about these issues all of the time. And I realized that not everyone does, not surprising, but it really came home to me in 2010, when I was at the International Criminal Court Review Conference in Kampala, Uganda. And I was speaking with a senior international criminal court official, and that official, what I was speaking about was the areas in which I think the international criminal court still needed to develop the law, and I mentioned uh, gender, for example. And that individual turned to me and said, what does gender mean anyway? And it, it made me, it brought me to reality, right? Because I, I think about this stuff all of the time, but not everybody does. And it made me think even more than I already did about what do they understand? what does international criminal law understand gender means? So I'm going to turn to three different themes today. First, I want to explore the meanings that are ascribed to the term gender in international criminal law. Then I want to look at the way in which gender has been interpreted in decisions and judgments of international criminal tribunals. And I call that both understandings and misunderstandings of gender. And finally, I will look forward and consider the future impact of these understandings or misunderstandings of gender in international criminal law. So let me turn to my first theme, which is how is gender understood in international criminal judgments and decisions? from the Yugoslav, Rwanda, uh, Cambodia, Sierra Leone, war crimes tribunals, and the International Criminal Court. So first of all, sometimes the word gender is used to mean biological sex, meaning male or female, by the tribunals. And this occurs uh, not very often in judgments, but in documents, policy documents, for example, reporting on so-called gender balance, in the recruitment of international criminal court staffed, and these are documents that are sent to the International Criminal Court's Assembly of States parties, and also in listing the so called gender criteria for the election of judges to the International Criminal Court. Sometimes it's used as a synonym for women, and I'm going to give you an example from the special court for Sierra Leone. In the Civil Defense Force cases, two of the judges referred to evidence by women as gender evidence. Not evidence of gender-based crimes, but evidence by women as gender evidence. But for the most part, where the term gender comes up is in the consideration of sexual and gender-based violence, in particular sexual violence. For example, rape, sexual slavery, forced nudity, or sexual mutilation. And in considering these sexual forms of violence the courts often refer to that as gender-based harm. And then sometimes gender is understood in the sense that if you are a gender studies student, you wouldn't understand it, which is socially constructed norms of maleness and femaleness, such as in the International Criminal Court's Office of the Prosecutor's 2014 policy paper on sexual and gender-based crimes and also in the dissent by Judge Odio Benito in the Lubamba trial judgment of the ICC. Now, I'm gonna focus for a moment on the International Criminal Court because there's quite a deep history of the consideration of the term gender with respect to the ICC. During the drafting of the Rome Statute and full disclosure in which I was involved on this particular issue, the term gender was introduced by a number of states, including my own. And it was introduced in many different provisions dealing with crimes, so for example, gender-based persecution as a crime against humanity. The provisions on victim uh, protection, qualifications of judges, staffing of the court, and the law that is applicable to the international criminal court by the judges. And a majority of countries supported the use of the term they supported the use of the term for a number of different reasons um, in part because they had already supported the use of the term in the united nations system so don't forget the international criminal court negotiations were initially uh, founded within the united nations system so in the united nations system there was discussion at that time in the 1990s of gender mainstreaming as well as gender equality in development in the environment etc so these countries said well this is a term already in, in heavy use in the United Nations system, and we accept that. So we accept that it can be used in the Rome Statute. However, the Holy See, conservative Catholic states, and conservative Middle Eastern states opposed the use of the term gender in the Rome Statute. This opposition resulted in very contentious, polarized negotiations in 1998, that lasted almost to the very end of the Rome Statute negotiations in June, July, 1998. (coughs) Let me give you the arguments of those who were opposed to using the term gender, just so you can understand the contentiousness of what was being discussed. So first, those who were opposed were uh, fearful. They were fearful that if the terms included in the Rome Statute, that it would be, um, its existence would grant rights on the basis of sexual orientation. This is the view of Qatar and Yemen. Or they felt that the use of the term did not align with their cultural or religious beliefs, and this was argued by Syria and Bahrain. So that was one set of arguments. The second set of arguments was that the meaning of the term gender is too vague, that it made the term hard to translate and consequently violated the principle of legality So for those of you who are lawyers or law students, you would know that the principle of legality means that a crime has to be described clearly so that an accused can understand what he or she is liable for. Um, And it's a very specific principle that all crimes must meet in the International Criminal Court statute. And this was raised by Egypt, Guatemala, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. They recommended, first of all, deletion of the term and secondly, if it couldn't be deleted, to use instead a meaning of gender that, in essence, meant biological sex. Now, I mentioned that the majority of states were, in fact, in favor of using the term gender as a socially constructed term based on norms of maleness and femaleness, and that these norms have, in the past, been used as a reason to target individuals for persecution and in particular, I remember Canada making an argument about persecution based on sexual orientation in World War II, and the targeting by the Nazis of homosexuals. And states that were in favor of including the term gender said, well, yes, this is exactly the sort of thing that we want to criminalize through the crimes against humanity, crimes crime against humanity of persecution. And then apart from that, I mentioned that they pointed to the widespread use of the term within the United Nations system, and also within their own domestic laws and policies. So this division was only resolved through resorting to something called constructive ambiguity. This is a diplomatic term of art that is used by, it's it's a, a method that is resorted to by diplomats when there are polar opposite points of view, but yet a consensus decision needs to be come to in order for, for example, a treaty to be adopted. So what constructive ambiguity ambiguity means is that indefinite language is chosen to seemingly resolve a dispute because that indefinite language can be read in different ways, and that that indefinite language is there as a placeholder, and eventually later someone else is going to have to decide how to interpret this language. In this case, the ICC judges. So let me read you the definition that was ultimately ultimately negotiated. It's intentionally opaque, so if you don't understand it, that's (coughs) totally fine. (laughs) For the purposes of the statute, it's understood that the term gender refers to the two sexes, male and female, within the context of society. The term gender does not indicate any meaning different from the above. So that's the definition of gender, intentionally opaque in the Rome statute. But resorting to this constructive ambiguity, has led to confusion since 1998 within the the International Criminal Court system as to what uh, gender means. Even though the inclusion of the term gender was widely viewed as a positive thing for the International Criminal Court. So these spillover effects have meant that the International Criminal Court until relatively recently pretty much avoided trying to deal with what the meaning of the term gender was because of this ambiguity that existed, and knowing, for the most part, um, the senior officials at the ICC had been involved in or exposed to those negotiations, and they knew how contentious they were. As well, outside of the ICC discussions, the Holy See has been trying to take this definition and insert it into other documents as a way to try and promote its view of um, the Definition of gender is being grounded in and bounded by biological sexual differences. So if any of you have followed or have followed the negotiations around the 2011 Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, usually known as the Istanbul Convention, you'll know that the Holy See tried to take this definition and insert it into that document, and they did not succeed in that. So having said that though, the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court tackled this head on in 2014 with the release of its policy paper on sexual and gender-based crimes. This policy paper is just that. It's not a legal document, it's a policy interpretation of what the Office of the Prosecutor plans to do or is already doing in implementing a gender competent and gender sensitive approach to crimes but it is influential. It is influential. So in this policy paper, the Office of the Prosecutor (coughs) understands gender in a very nuanced manner. So first of all, as it must be, set out this article that i read to you, Article 7, Sub 3, on the Rome Statute. And then it says, here, basically it says, here's how we interpret that definition. This definition acknowledges the social construction of gender and the accompanying roles, behaviors, activities and attributes assigned to women and men, and girls and boys. And the Office of the Prosecutor says that the policy pledges to examine the place of gender in the Commission of Crimes and in its aftermath by considering e investigations, the roles of females and males, the different patterns of involvement, behavior, and activities they have in economic, social, and legal systems, the constraints they face relative to each other, and available opportunities within complex sets of differing social and cultural expectations. So the ICC Office of the Prosecutor is coming at an understanding of gender in a very deep manner, a very uh, thick manner, if you follow the language. The Office of the Prosecutor also says that it interprets gender in light of internationally recognized human rights. And especially announced that gender-based violence is not always manifested as sexual violence. That non-sexual attacks on women and girls, men and boys, may be uh, gender-based violence. And finally, the Office of the Prosecutor considers that there are linkages between <laughs> gender, persecution, and sexual orientation or gender identity. In other words, a very, very deep approach to understanding gender. So I'm gonna now turn, though, to my second theme, which is how has gender actually been understood today in judgments and decisions of international So as I mentioned earlier, gender is largely understood through the lens of sexual violence because that is how the jurisprudence has developed to date. And that is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing, of course, because if any of you have followed this, sexual violence crimes have been ignored or had been ignored for centuries. There was really deep silence around sexual violence crimes for a very long time. So the fact that the modern day international criminal tribunals have turned their attention, that there have been charges, that definitions of these crimes have been articulated, and that there have been convictions, is a major step forward in international criminal law. A major step forward in international criminal law's understanding of sexual violence in particular. So let me use one example, and that is a break. It's it's the paradigmatic example of Sexual violence crime. The Yugoslav and Rwanda war crimes tribunals and the Special Court for Sierra Leone have not only defined the elements of rape, they have also uncovered patterns of rape and motivations behind rape. Let me speak specifically about the Special Court for Sierra Leone for a moment to give you an example of how they've done this because it really has expanded international criminal law's understanding of where and how sexual violence um, exists. Within major crimes, in the Revolutionary United Front case, the court was looking at the activities of a particular rebel group, a particularly a violent rebel group, in the context of the civil war in Sierra Leone, and they concluded that rape was central to the strategic goals of the Revolutionary United Front. <coughs> that. There were a number of different kinds of rape that was strategically employed in order to gain a particular end, which was control over vast uh, territories and um, citizens, civilians within those territories. So these are the types of rape they explored. Uh, Gang rape, multiple rapes, rape with weapons or other objects, rape in public, rape in between family members, and rape in which family members were forced to watch, and rape forced between civilians who did not even love each other. These last forms of violation, these sorts of public rapes in which civilians are forced to rape each other, family members are forced to rape each other, had not been explored in any detail prior to the special court for Sierra Leone. But since then, this sort of rape is now being looked at on a systematic basis in UN Commission of Courts. then the Charles Taylor Taylor judgment came out that was the last judgment of the special court for Sierra Leone and that judgment even expanded more our understanding of how rape occurred in the Sierra Leonean context and it found that females young old middle-aged all, all uh, females all uh, from all types of society, from all classes, were subjected to abduction or capture and rape, and that certain forms of rape were directed towards certain types of females. For example, rape was targeted at breastfeeding mothers to break societal taboos, because in Sierra Leone it was a, there's a cultural understanding that breastfeeding women do not have sex. So they were intentionally targeted to break that societal taboo so as to break apart the cultural bounds of society. And the same with directing rape at very young virgin girls. The Taylor Trial Chamber also highlighted how rape in public or rape done to break these societal norms aggravated the harm that occurred to the victims. It was intentionally done so as to increased the amount of harm that was suffered by these civilians, by the victims, by their families, and by their communities. And they found, the court found, that Charles Taylor should consequently uh, receive a higher sentence as a result. So this very close attention to how and why rape occurred not only confirmed what had already been recorded in the the, uh, Sierra Leone Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but also confirmed to the international community that the investigation of rape and sexual violence needs to be nuanced. It needs to get at these patterns. It needs to get at these societal um, taboos. It needs to get at why. Why were these particular victims targeted in the way that they were? And oftentimes gender-based norms explain this. Let me talk about the curse then of sexual violence being the main way through which international criminal law has developed its understanding of gender. And I'm going to give you another example from the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Special (coughs) Court for Sierra Leone's prosecutor charged something called forced marriage. Forced marriage is a violation, in this case, in which women and girls were intentionally targeted for abduction or capture by it often uh, the rebel groups, and when they were captured, they were then forcibly assigned to commanders or to combatants to serve as their so-called wives, or bush wives they would call it. And this was called forced marriage. No actual marriage occurred, no legal marriage occurred, but it, it, uh, it was called marriage. So the special court was hearing the prosecutor called this sexual violence. But in fact, forced marriage is gender-based violence. It it, it has a sexual violence aspect to it because the women and girls who were forcibly assigned to the combatants or to the soldiers were made to submit to forced sex whenever their so-called husband demanded. But they were also, there was another reason why forced marriage was used. It was used because it was a way for the rebels to get cooks, um, people to do laundry, people to do farming, people to do quartering, and it was a very gendered, um, interpretation of what wives do in Sierra Leone. So forced marriage has both a sexual element and a non-sexual, a very gendered labor element to it, slavery element to it. But the prosecutor called it only sexual violence. And that kind of started a chain that led to a, a, a negative outcome in the very first case, which is called the Armed Forces Revolution Council case. In that case, the judges said that they were relying upon the prosecutor's categorization of forced marriage as sexual violence. So that when they were looking at the two charges that were existing, um, there were three charges existing in this case of rape, sexual slavery, and forced marriage, they looked at sexual slavery and they looked at forced marriage and said, well, there's no difference between these two things because the prosecutor had um, characterized this as sexual so they ended up striking out the forced marriage charge because they said it was duplicating sexual slavery charge. So in the end, there was no, uh, and then it's another long story that I can get into in questions and answers if you want, where the sexual slavery charge was also um, set aside. So in the end, there were no actual convictions for forced marriage or sexual slavery in that particular case. <laughs> the good news though, is that in subsequent cases, Actually, the good news is that in that same case, the Appeals Chamber overturned that understanding and adopted a more nuanced understanding of forced marriage as a gender-based crime, having both the gender-labor elements and the sexual slavery elements. And then that was then developed further and in much more detail in the Revolutionary and the Trumps and trust Taylor cases. So I mentioned now the collapsing of of gender-based (coughs) violence into this category of sexual violence. But I also wanted to mention that the prosecutor of the um, Special Court for Sierra Leone made another assumption, which also kind of collapsed this understanding of gender. And that is where he had, um, in the indictment, charged sexual violence and then indicated that it was against women and girls. Now, this is based on the understanding from the TRC in Sierra Leone that had found that women and girls were the uh, victims of sexual and gender-based violence on a massive scale in Sierra Leone. So it's not uh, I guess surprising in a way that he jumped to this conclusion that the victims of sexual and gender-based violence were women and girls in Sierra Leone. And so that is how all the indictments are framed. But as the evidence came out, it became clear that men and boys were also subjected to sexual violence in Sierra Leone. And men and boys were subjected to sexual violence in the ways that I'd already mentioned, where they were targeted and forced to rape or forced to watch rape of family members. So those who were forced to watch and forced to do, both of those would be victims as well. But also, men and boys were targeted for uh, torture by putting burning things on their genitals, whether it was peppers or burning fuses or this sort of thing, uh, and whatnot. So men and boys, this evidence against men and boys also came out in the trial. But because the prosecutor had made an assumption, made an assumption, a widely held assumption, about who the victims are of sexual violence, that they're only women and girls, it meant that in two of the cases, the judges excluded this evidence of sexual violence against men and boys because the indictment was framed in Europe. Let me turn to another misunderstanding. That sexual and gender-based violence is somehow a thing apart, a thing different from the other sorts of things that happen in armed conflict. And unfortunately, this un- misunderstanding has occurred in the Special Court for Sierra Leone, in the International Criminal Court, and in the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal. But I'm going to start with the special court for Sierra Leone, since I'm already on that theme. Special court for Sierra Leone. In the Civil Defense Forces case, the prosecutor asked to amend the indictment. At that time, he didn't have any charges to deal with sexual and gender based violence, but the prosecutor had uncovered evidence and was trying to uh, make a request to amend the indictment. This was denied. Then the prosecutor... Requested to introduce evidence of gender based violence through other charges, which is often done at the Yugoslav and Rwanda war crimes tribunals, in particular the crime against humanity of inhumane acts and the war crime of cruel treatment. Because rape and sexual violence, uh, sexual mutilation and whatnot, they also qualify as inhumane acts and cruel treatment, at least in the Rwanda and Yugoslav tribunals. Justice Ito in this particular case implied that he was excluding this kind of evidence because evidence of gender-based crimes, according to him, is much more likely to impugn the reputation of the accused than any other kind of evidence, and therefore make it difficult for the judges to fairly evaluate the case. I see some of you frowning, and I hope you are, because this is hard to understand reasoning, although it does look like reasoning that existed in Canadian courts in the 1950s. The Appeals Chamber sharply rebuked Justice Vito and rightly so, observing that the right to a fair trial cannot be violated by the introduction of evidence relevant to any allegation in the trial proceedings, regardless of the nature or the severity of that evidence. However, the Appeals Chamber decided not to reopen those charges, or not to reopen the potential for introducing those charges, instead choosing to uh, direct its comments to give guidance to the judges at the trial chamber. The end result is that the Civil Defense Force's trial judgment contains no mention of sexual and gender-based violence committed by the CDF against women. Let me turn to the International Criminal Court example. The International (laughs) Criminal Court's first judgment in which sexual and gender-based violence is examined in detail is the Katanga case involving crimes committed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And for those of you who don't know the Katanga case, although maybe all of you do, the, the charges arose out of an attack against a very specific village. In the Aturi district of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2003. So, really, really specific charges, specific attack at a specific time. Katanga was accused of three counts of crimes against humanity murder, rape, and sexual slavery, and seven counts of war crimes using children under 15 to take active part in hostilities, directing an attack against the civilian population willful killing or murder, destruction of property, pillaging, sexual slavery, or rape. The trial chamber found that Katango facilitated the receipt and storage of weapons and ammunition for the militia that committed this attack. He was, in essence, an intermediary. He was the one who had the satellite um, communications. He could communicate with weapon suppliers in order to supply the militia he actually allotted the weapons and ammunition to commanders, and those were the commanders that carried out the attack on the village. So in other words, the court concluded that his involvement was absolutely key to the military superiority of that militia in that attack on that village. (coughs) He was sentenced to 12 years in imprisonment, and that sentence, um, he was given credit for time served in custody of the ICC since 2007.
1: He was sentenced, so
0: he was found guilty of something. What was he found guilty of? He was found guilty as an accessory to the crime against humanity of murder, and the war crime of murder, attacking the civilian population, destruction of property, and pillaging. So what's missing here? Sexual slavery and rape, as well as the use of child soldiers. The trial chamber accepted that sexual slavery and rape did occur that it did occur as a result of this attack by the militia on the village in 2003. But they did not accept that Katanga was responsible for these crimes. The, the trial chamber viewed the sexual violence aspects of the attack in a different light than the other violence. A majority of the judges concluded that Katanga's contribution reinforced the militia's capacity to implement the attack and that the murder of civilians, pillage of their belongings and destruction of their village and their property was part of the common plan to wipe out that village. And the chamber noted that it was common in Keturi, particularly above this type of combatant to set the houses on fire whenever they went in and uh, pillaged and, and uh, took over a village that It was common for them to seize property, and it was common for them to murder when they came into villages to seize those villages. And therefore, they concluded that the combatants knew that this is what was going to happen when they went into the village to carry out this attack. And that Katanga knew that this is what would happen. But, the trial chamber said, the prosecution had not shown that these particular militia had committed acts of rape and sexual slavery in prior attacks, and therefore that there was no proof that the militia knew that they might or they would commit sexual slavery and rape as a result of their overrunning of the village in 2003, and therefore that rape and sexual slavery did not fall within the common purpose of that attack. But this finding departed without any explanation from the majority finding in the confirmation of Charges' decision that the Inghiti militia had committed rape and sexual slavery not only in attacks before that one, but in attacks after that one. And there was no explanation in the trial judgment as to why they didn't consider that evidence in this in the trial judgment. This unexplained reasoning then allowed the trial chamber to differentiate rape and sexual slavery from pillaging and destruction of property, which they found could take a new or expected in the ordinary course of events whatever. And that's not, only the, the, that's not all the analysis. Additionally, the chamber relied upon an analysis of whether the crimes were numerous, the sexual violence crimes were numerous, and committed repetitively. And they found that no evidence is laid before the chamber to allow it to find that the acts of rape and enslavement were committed on a wide scale and repeatedly. So what does this seem to imply? It seems to imply that the trial chamber wanted to see higher numbers. There were 60 people killed in the village by the militia. There were 17 um, allegations of rape in this case. But there were also one and a half years worth of sexual slavery of one of the witnesses, where she, in which she was um, subjected to rape uncounted times. She couldn't count how many times she'd been subjected to rape, so she couldn't enumerate it. And there was another witness who had been a um, a sexual slave for a month, and she also couldn't count how many times she was raped. So this use of numbers is suspect, I believe, in trying to make some differentiation between rape and enslavement, and the pillaging and destruction of property and murder. And this is very perplexing, I find, because just earlier in the judgment, about hundred pages before in the judgment the trial chamber had already concluded that the combatants had intentionally raped three witnesses and these rapes formed part of a systematic attack targeting a civilian population which was predominantly Hama ethnicity which The perpetrators knew that these crimes were part of the attack. And they'd also found earlier in the judgment that three witnesses were sexually enslaved in military camps, and sexual slavery formed part of a systematic attack directed towards the predominantly Hama civilian population, and that the perpetrators committing these crimes had full knowledge that they were part of this. So the disconnect between the findings and the facts of what the combatants did and the findings on um, the link to Katanga are just very unclear. And it's not only, doesn't stop there. The chamber also found that since the common purpose was to wipe out a particular ethnic group, in this case, the Hema. This did not apply to the women and girls who were sexually enslaved and raped because when asked if they were Hema, they lied and said no because they knew that if they said yes, they would be killed. So they were trying to stay alive. (laughs) But the perpetrators also knew that they were lying. And in fact, the evidence was there. If you look at the transcripts and if you look at the summary in the factual part, the factual findings of the judgment, you'll see that over and over again, these women were asked, are you Hannah?" No, they say. And then the perpetrators are saying, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. And yet, the trial chamber relied on the lies to separate the sexual violence from the other parts of the common plan in order to say that there was it didn't fit in the common plan because there wasn't this ethnic targeting. This is very troubling, I say. Um, what they didn't take into account was that when the women lied, the per- perpetrators put to them a choice. We can kill you now, or you can stay and be our know, so-called wives, and they ended up being so-called wives, push like in Sierra Leone. It was in the interest of the perpetrators to keep these women alive, because they used them as cooks, as um, cleaners, as porters, as they moved to the war front. They used them as slaves. It was in their gendered labor interest to keep these women alive. And where does that gender analysis fit into this analysis about women line? It doesn't. The trial chamber did a disservice to international criminal law through this very unclear reason. Bridget <laughs> Ender of the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice, a non-governmental organization that follows these sorts of developments in the International Criminal Court, put it well. She said, what we see in this judgment is emblematic, so many cases. It's perhaps a subconscious but clear bias requiring sexual violence to be a more explicit component of the common plan than is expected for any other category of crimes. That the preparation considered necessary to commit rape and sexual slavery is different from the preparation necessary to commit other crimes which occur simultaneously with the rape and sexual slavery and that the scale and volume of sexual violence may be rendered invisible by an incomplete assessment of the evidence. And I'll turn to my final example of a misunderstanding of an international criminal law, and it's very related. It's the ICTY case in Vladimir Dordovich, but there's another case also called Sinovich in which the same sorts of reasoning came out. In this particular case, the trial chamber found that incidences of sexual assault against Kosovar Albanian women by Serb forces had in fact occurred. But they found there was no evidence that these sexual assaults were committed with any form of discrimination in mind. And therefore, that they could not be found to be part of the crime against humanity of the persecution. So this reasoning looks a lot like the Katanga reasoning that we just talked about. But the Appeals Chamber took the opposite view, thankfully, and found that the Trial Chamber failed to evaluate the surrounding circumstances of the sexual assaults, that is, that these crimes occurred in the course of the forcible displacement of the Kosovar Albanian populations. And the Trial Chamber said, considering this wider context in which these sexual assaults were occurring, the only reasonable inference that could be drawn from this evidence was that sexual assaults were committed with discriminatory intent, thus satisfying the requirements of the crime of persecution. And as I mentioned, the same sort of reasoning at the trial level and then at the Appeals Chamber level occurred in the ICTY's wise sandwich case. So I'm gonna end this part of my analysis of gender misunderstandings by noting the positive parts of what comes out of these misunderstandings and that is we see very clearly in international criminal law that sexual and gender based violence does not take place in a vacuum. It very, very rarely occurs on its own. It much more often occurs alongside beatings, abductions, enslavement, mutilation, and murder. It's part of a web of complex crimes that are ongoing in an armed conflict or situation of mass atrocity. In the beginning, the investigators of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia made an assumption. They made an assumption that it's more important to investigate murder than it is to investigate sexual and gender-based crimes. In sort of a hierarchy of understandings. And in doing that, they missed in their initial investigations evidence of sexual and gender-based violence. And then they had to go back and find that evidence, when it later became clear that in order to understand the context of murder, you need to understand what led to that murder, and in many cases, it involves sexual or gender-based violence. It's that gender norms are part of that larger context, and that context is very important for understanding the overall frame of harms that occurred in any given conflict. <coughs> return to the end. What is the future impact of these understandings or misunderstandings on international criminal law? I feel that the future has two different possibilities in it, perhaps existing at the same time. The first is that international criminal law will continue to evolve towards more and nuanced understandings of the role that gender norms play in crimes. Gender norms can explain why certain victims were targeted the choice of means of an attack and the depth of harms that occurred in particular to a particular person and within a particular community and i believe that we're on this path that we are having um, we're heading towards the direction of a very nuanced deeper understanding of what gender means in international criminal law and an example of this of course is the office of the prosecutor policy paper of the ICC on sexual and gender-based crimes. But the other possibility is one that keeps popping up time and again, and that is for international criminal law's understanding of gender to stagnate and stay where it is at the moment, or even go backwards. The thin and unclear reasoning in the Katanga judgment makes me worried that we can go in this direction. The fact that comments such as those made by Justice Ito and the Special Court for Sierra Moon, can be made in, in this decade, make me worry that we can slide backwards at any given moment. Now, I'm working towards the first, more optimistic, more positive vision. I hope that any of you who are working on generations are doing the same. But I do believe that it will require and does require a concerted effort. Within the international criminal law field, so that not only do so-called gender experts understand what gender means in international criminal law, but that this understanding is becomes widespread within international criminal law. Of course, there'll always be a need for investigators, for example, who have deep expertise in gender issues to be present in the International Criminal Court or any other international criminal tribunal and domestic tribunal. But what we need to work towards is to have this deeper understanding of gender extend not only in that direction, but also everywhere in the court, up to the level of the judges, within their clerks, within the registry, within those who are not investigating sexual and gender-based crimes in the office of the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court and any other international tribunal. In other words, we need gender to. Better understood across a wide range of international criminal law actors. That's it.